other. In mind, not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Thank you, Chris. We do keep the Bibles open at Romans chapter 14. We're continuing on uh, in this series. Don was preaching uh, last week on those uh, previous verses. And uh, we're going to spend some time this morning thinking about our consciences. Um, I wonder how you understand your conscience, what you, what you see it doing in your life. Um, if you see any of the old sort of Disney cartoons... Um, a conscience is always depicted as these two little versions of yourself, one looking very white and holy with a little halo around its head, whispering you, telling you not to do bad stuff. And this other one, this red one with little horns, you know, goading you on into making bad decisions. And it's like this battle, oh, which way do I go? Good conscience, bad conscience, which way do I go? But the Bible doesn't talk about a conscience like that. The Bible talks about a conscience as the God-given part of us that helps us to make decisions about whether something is right or wrong. It is part of us. It's not these external things sitting on our shoulders or or something out there. External things do affect it, but actually it's part of who we are. It's it's a God-given, it's a good part of who we are. But the conscience functions a little bit like a a car limiter. Now, if you drive um, uh, sort of a professional lorry or a bus, sometimes you see that they they are limited to a certain uh, speed limit. Or if you go into Germany, the autobahn, the motorway there, um, it's unrestricted. So what the German government decided to do is that a lot of the, the, the new German cars have this limiter of 155 miles an hour on it. Still pretty fast, isn't it? But you can't go any faster than that. So you get up to this speed and then the limiter hits and it stops you from going any faster. It's a little bit like what the, the picture of the conscience is that we get in the Bible. It, it stops 
when you get to a certain point. It flares up when we, when we think that we might be doing something wrong. Now, everybody has a conscience. Everyone sitting here this morning has a conscience. But not everyone's conscience is the same. Take what we were looking at last week, thinking about eating meat. Some of us here will have no problem. Our conscience doesn't trigger when we, when we eat meat or think about buying meat or, or where it's come from. We may know lots about where it comes from, but that's not a problem. And that's fine. But there will be some people who it is a problem for. Maybe they're vegetarian or, or vegan. There's going to be difference. They both have a conscience, but their conscience is operating differently. Everyone has one, but not everyone's is the same. And as we see in this passage, the conscience is a really important tool that God has given us. But it does need training. It does need training. And the point that Paul is getting at here is it can either be undersensitive, so your conscience doesn't trigger whatever you do, or it can be oversensitive, that the slightest thing, oh my goodness, I know I shouldn't be doing this or anywhere near this. It can be oversensitive. And it's the oversensitive conscience that Paul is particularly concerned with addressing. Um, it's really bright and sunny today. If any of you are being blinded by the light coming in, um, please feel free to move. I won't take offence. That's fine. Um, don't want you being blinded, uh, church. That would be good. Our conscience, so it can be oversensitive, and that's the issue that Paul is addressing in this part of Romans. Now, let's think about the situation that, that he was writing to from what we can piece together. What we know is that there were basically two groups of people. Christians from a Jewish background, maybe they've, they've been brought up in a really strict traditional Jewish culture. They know about when to observe Sabbath and how much they can do and, and the, the ritual that you go through and what food you can and can't eat, how to observe festivals, stuff like that. And they have become a Christian. They have come to realise that Jesus Christ, he is the awaited Jewish Messiah and they have put their faith in him. But there's other people in the church as well who aren't from a Jewish background. None of that traditional heritage, that's, that's not part of their background. It's not a problem for them about what food they eat. They don't see that certain foods may be clean or unclean. Because we look in our Old Testaments and we see that God instructed the Israelites to behave in a certain way. To show a level of distinctiveness so that the other nations would notice that there's something different about these people. And that actually out of these people would come the saviour, not only of the Jews, but the saviour of the whole world. They were instructed to live in a certain way to show that they were different. But for people from a non-Jewish background, that, that's never been part of their story. It doesn't make sense to them. So there isn't this problem about seeing certain foods as clean or unclean. All food's the same. Now, part of the challenge for working out how we are going to take this passage to heart, because we've got it in our Bibles for a reason. It's not just an interesting history lesson. We don't really have that problem nowadays. I mean, I don't look out and see half of the people in the church from a Jewish background, probably, who, who are struggling, don't like the idea of eating certain foods or, or how much they do on a Saturday. That's not really an issue for us as a church. But actually, as we, we think and we pray, there are issues that still affect us today. Issues where people's consciences might be a little bit oversensitive. 
And it's really important that we think about how we relate to one another in a church where that's happening. And I think to some level, it's probably saying that we all experience one way or another. Now, for most Christians, if you call yourself a Christian here today, chances are we're going to agree on most of the major stuff, I reckon. So, for example, that, uh, that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's a pretty standard Christian belief. The fact that, that Jesus actually did die for our sins and that he came back to life, that's a pretty standard Christian belief. And that we're made right with God through trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if none of those make sense and you're really struggling with those, well, then I'd love for you to come along to something like Alpha. It's going to start up in September. We can explore those, those kind of fundamental, those basic things that this is what it means to be a Christian. And this is why we can know that these things are true. It'd be great for you to come along to that. But most people who already claim to be a Christian will believe in those things, won't they? But there's going to be things here that we disagree on. Things that, that we take slightly different view that maybe our consciences get really bothered about. Someone with a differing view. Things like how creation came into being. How old the earth is. Things like baptism. Who should be baptised? Who shouldn't be baptised? How old should they be? How should it be done? Things like music. What kind of music we have in church? What kind of music I like? Or things outside of church. Who should we spend time with? Who shouldn't we spend time with? Or things like, is it okay to drink alcohol? Is it okay to smoke tobacco? All sorts of things that we're going to disagree with. That perhaps we see someone doing one of these things and our conscience feels, that doesn't seem right. I couldn't do that. There there are going to be different things for different ones of us, which is why there aren't specifics from this passage, but we do have the tools to live this out when we face it. And it's my hope that we would. So how might we respond then? How might we respond to people who object to what we are doing when it is not a sin? Okay, when it is not a sin. How might we respond to people who object to what we do when it is not a sin? Well, the first advice that that Paul gives us is clear, but it is far from easy. The first thing he says is don't rub your freedom in people's faces. Have a look with me down at the passage, chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Paul says that person who is is struggling with the fact that you do something that isn't a sin, don't judge them. Don't judge them. Do not set yourself up as a judge to look down on them in some way. Now, we probably wouldn't obviously do that. We wouldn't stand and say, point our finger at them. That's not going to happen. But it might be subtle. Look out for the dangers in the subtleties for where sin can creep in. Just that that little looking down on someone. Or maybe it looks like disassociating yourself. You know that that person doesn't like the fact that you are doing this thing. Well, then I'm just not going to be around them. I'm going to avoid them at coffee after the church service. Or if I bump into them in town, I'm not going to really say anything. Little subtle ways of judging other people. And Paul says this because he knows this is going to be a temptation for us. Because if we believe that we know the truth and someone else isn't living up to that, then it's going to be a real temptation to look down on them. Or perhaps to try and trick them up. Paul talks in verse 13 about not putting any stumbling block in front of them. It's like the idea of laying down a banana skin. 
seeing what happens. I remember I was shopping a few years back in, in Burgess Hill. Don't ask me why. I was shopping in Burgess Hill. And there were these two guys. I don't know whether they were making a video or something. And they were filming this pedestrianised street. And they placed this banana skin in the middle of this path. I thought, oh, no. What's going to happen? But I wasn't brave enough to actually do anything or say anything to them. And then I saw this guy walking right towards the banana skin, this guy from the church I was at. I said, oh, no. And, and I felt trapped between, I, I should really say something to him because he might, you know, slip over and really hurt himself. But I just felt paralysed. I just didn't quite know what to do. So, so anyway, he got closer and closer to this banana skin. And the, the tension was palpable. And as he got to this banana skin, he kind of let a little slip and then carried on. So, oh, goodness. That was the, bat, the right kind of outcome. So he slipped a bit, but he didn't hurt himself. And he just looked puzzled and he saw this banana skin on the floor. That's what Paul is talking about, this idea of, of setting a stumbling block before someone. This idea of putting something in their way so that when they encounter it, they, they trip over. It causes them harm. That's not what Christians should be doing. It's, that's more like a, a child teasing someone by holding up something and saying, I've got this, you can't have it. It's not how people who know the love of God in their lives are to behave. We're not to judge them. We're not to try and trip them up. Even if that's just naturally exercising the freedom of our conscience. We might feel completely free and liberated in these things. But if it causes someone to stumble, Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Now, this might be hard for some of us because we might feel that we're in the right. And Paul, look what he says in verse 14. Often we may well be in the right with our behavior. Verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. What is Paul saying here? Well, basically he's saying all food is clean. There is no such thing as as unclean food in and of itself. And Paul stresses this because it's really important to his message. All those cleanliness laws that the Israelites had have now been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. We don't need them anymore because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he has come to be our saviour. It's important to Paul's message. But some people aren't quite there yet with that knowledge. Some people still see these things as unclean. It's so deeply entrenched in their tradition, in who they are, that they just can't let go of it. And for them, to some extent, that is okay. Because it is a matter, actually, of faith. Look at verse 23, right at the end. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Paul is saying then, if, if you're struggling to, to, to eat something or to live in a certain way or have, exercise a certain freedom because you feel it's not wrong, actually to do that thing would be sinful. Because it hasn't come from a position of faith. You're actually doing it by caving into pressure. It may be the right action, but it's the wrong motives. Which means that people who feel free in those things need to be willing to sacrifice their freedom of conscience. Verse 22, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Maybe no one will even notice that you are practicing this freedom. But as we'll go on to see... That's a sacrifice that is worth making. Whatever disagreement we find, even if we are certain that we are right, 
Paul says we are not to rub it in someone else's face. Instead, we're to replace that behavior with something else. We're to look to build them up. Have a look with me at the beginning of verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Now, we may be claiming to be living in love, to to know the source of all life and love. But actually, if we are prioritizing our freedom of conscience over another believer who is struggling with what we do, actually, we're not loving that person, are we? We're not demonstrating love. Actually, we're demonstrating the opposite. We're demonstrating hatred. goes on to say this in verse 15. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Paul is saying by exercising your freedom of conscience, you could be actually destroying the faith of someone. This is deadly serious. It's not showing love, it's showing hatred. The Bible speaks about hating our brothers and sisters like this. 1 John 3.15 Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. We're not going to be building our brothers and sisters up. We're not going to be showing love in that way. Instead, Paul says, build people up. Build them up. And this verse, uh, verse 19 is a really key verse of how we can live this out. If you go away remembering one verse to look at, how can I practice this? Look at verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort, every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Peace and mutual edification make every effort. And by peace... Paul is talking about this this relational harmony, this this unity that we're thinking about this week in week of prayer for Christian unity, a relational harmony. This peace that, that can cover over differences. Now, this isn't a no disagreements Christianity. This isn't just like how how kind of uh, weak and, and mild can we make it? It's not that. It's a powerful peace that is able to include within itself people who disagree, sometimes over some pretty big things. This isn't everyone seeing the same thing at the finest detail, but it's a peace that includes difference. Perhaps we find that idea hard, showing that kind of peace, thinking about that kind of peace in in a church where we disagree with people on all sorts of things. But if the church is to somehow represent Christ here on earth, what it means to be born again into a new and living hope, then the church has to be characterized by his peace. Peace. Secondly, edification. Basically, that means building up, growing other people. Wouldn't it be great if we look at the people who, who we often want to disassociate ourselves with because they believe differently and they become the special attention of our building up love? We want to see them as, as next level Christians. One of the hardest things about being a, a pastor, a minister, a priest is, is seeing people struggling with the same old things, stuck in a particular way of life or perhaps even going backwards wouldn't it be great if those kind of people the people who we find it hard to to get along with actually they can be the special attention of our building up love 
It's one of the things we're going to be looking at on, on our Lent course um, coming up in a few weeks' time as well, how we can encourage one another and to be growing ourselves. And I wonder, as you sit here, whether someone in particular comes to mind. Maybe it's someone sat near you right now. Maybe it's someone in your small group. Maybe it's someone else at, at church who you often find you disagree with. You find it really hard. Well, let Paul challenge you that that person can be the special attention of your building up and peaceful love. And be creative about it. Don't, don't go over the top straight away, go up to this person straight after the service, say, oh, we must spend time together every single day. Don't go from naught to a hundred. Be creative. Maybe send the occasional message or give them a phone call. Maybe just, just agree to spend some more time together, to hang out more. I think a lot of the time when we have problems with people is actually, well, it may just be that we're not willing to put in enough time to get to know them properly. Don't try and destroy people, he says in verse 20 and verse 21. It's not worth it. Instead, look to build them up. Well, how are we going to find the resources to do this? Um, Nick McQuake is going to come and speak to us next week. and We look at Romans 15, and this wonderful passage saying how about what Christ has done for us. And this is, this is a, comparatively a very easy sacrifice that we are asked to make. But for today... We think about how we can do this, how we can demonstrate sacrifice with our freedom of conscience. You've got to set your love in the bigger picture. Because as Paul says in verse 17, actually the kingdom of heaven is not about earthly delights, but something far greater. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of of God, then, is not necessarily about getting more earthly freedoms. One of the things you need to be aware of is, is when becoming a Christian, sometimes actually your earthly freedoms might be limited. There might be greater restrictions, either put on you by others, how they now treat you, or perhaps you put on yourself by engaging with the scriptures, with God's word, the Bible. You might put those on yourself. You realise actually things have to change in my life and the things that I do. Greater earthly restrictions in the way that we use our money, in the way that we use our sexuality, in the way that we use our words, in the way that we use our time. But that's okay. Because the greater freedom of the kingdom of God far outweighs any sacrifice that we would have to make with our earthly freedoms. Paul speaks of three heavenly joys, three rich, overflowing Bible words. Righteousness, peace, joy. Righteousness, that is a right standing before God. All of my sins dealt with, perfect in his sight. And because of that, that means that we can now live out that righteous character in our lives with others. Peace. Peace with God through the shedding of Jesus' blood as, as we will remember as we gather around to receive communion. Peace with God. And now the possibility of that peace being shared with others. People who we might otherwise offend. Peace through honesty, through forgiveness, through sacrifice, through reconciliation with our brothers and sisters who we disagree with. 
And thirdly, joy. Joy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Joy, I like to think of as being like buoyancy. You go down to the seafront on a, on a really windy day and the waves are crash, crashing down and you see those buoys. And each wave, it smashes the buoy down, but it always comes back up. That joy, that buoyancy that keeps you afloat, keeps you going, no matter what storms, no matter what sacrifices we face. That is the joys that we have. That's how we can be willing to sacrifice the freedom of our conscience, righteousness, peace, joy. And the amazing thing is actually we have no claim on those heavenly joys on our own, do we? We don't deserve those things. We don't deserve the perfect peace and joy from heaven. We've done all sorts of things to to mess that up, to cut ourselves off from that. We only have them because the only person who ever deserved them willingly sacrificed them for us. Sacrificed his claim to them on the cross. Experienced no peace on the cross. He gave up his freedom, Jesus, so that we, people with troubled consciences, because of the bad stuff we've done, might get these things for free as a gift. The kingdom of heaven is, is not about earthly freedoms, but a far greater freedom, righteousness, peace and joy. And finally, a sacrificial living that pleases God. Verse 18, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. If you are willing to sacrifice your freedom of conscience for the sake of others who find what you do offensive, even though it's not sin, if you are willing to sacrifice that, God is pleased. God is pleased. He is pleased because that is how you are serving Christ. You are acting like him, like Christ. The one who came not to be served but to serve. And Paul says as well, you might just receive human approval. If you want people to change, well, you don't judge them. You don't make them stumble and think that will make them change or just tease them about whatever they find hard. Paul says, no, be prepared to sacrifice your freedom of conscience. And that is the way that change in their life will come. That is the way they will grow. That is the way perhaps they will experience freedom. Maybe for the first time by you being prepared to sacrifice yours. So how might we respond to people who object to what we do when it's not sin? Well, don't rub your freedom in their face. Don't make them stumble or look down on them. Instead, try and build them up. Make them the special attention of your sacrificial love. And set that love in the bigger picture of what God has done for us. Amen.